morning, church. You all sound good this morning. Welcome to Edgemere. If you're new with us, we are especially honored that you chose to spend this morning with us. We want you to be a part of everything we do. We want you to feel comfortable with all that. As you came in, hopefully you had a chance to pick up the bulletin, see what's happening here and what's coming up. I say it every time almost that I get up here, and that is if you came here, especially if you're looking for a church home, you found a special place. I also want to explain just a little bit about why I say that. And I can do that just by mentioning a few things that I saw this church do in the past week. Stephen Wolf is our associate minister. And almost every week, he goes to the All Red Prison Unit. He chose that, that task. And he goes there every week. And it is a hard hard ministry. When I think of what Stephen does at Allred, I think of the passage where Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not overcome my church. The gates of hell are just a few miles outside of Wichita Falls. And there are thousands of men inside that place, inside that wire, going through the worst times of their life. It is hell. But there's some people like Stephen who come in on their, on their own, and they bring light into that darkness. And some good things are happening. Some of the most committed, excited brothers in Christ you will ever meet, you may never meet because they're inside those walls. But that's because this church and people like Stephen are willing to go and do things like that. The banners behind me, this is... We believe that our, our mission as a church is to go and make disciples. It's straight from the, the Great Commission in Matthew 29. And part of that is to go and share. And that's just one example of the ways I've seen us go and share. Tuesday night, I saw Don and Wynn Hyen and Carol Macon and, and Lavelle and Mara Scotty at Faith Refuge. Faith Refuge is a place where they are helping women come out of cycles of addiction and abuse and some of our people once a month go out there and, and feed them and serve them and just encourage these ladies as they rebuild their lives. There's a couple here that are about to go to Honduras at their own expense. You know why they're going to Honduras? Because they met a young lady down there on one of the mission trips. And this young lady is going through cancer treatments. And she doesn't have much of a family at all. And so this couple from Edgemere decided at their own expense, with their own time, to drive or to fly to Honduras just so that that young lady is not alone during what she's about to go through this next week. I got a call last week from a family here who received a legal settlement. And when they called, they said, we just, we have it on our heart that we want to do something for someone else with some of this money that is coming our way. And this is a significant amount of money. And so we talked it over a little bit and explored some options, and they are going to give a, a very nice gift to some missionaries in Germany. And they're also going to give a, a very nice gift to a ministry in Louisiana that houses prisoners who are, who are transitioning out of prison and back into the world. They could have done so many things with that money. And most folks, if they had money like that coming in, 
they would have spent it on something besides someone else that they had never met and may never meet. But that is the hearts that they have because what they learn from Christ, this is real to them. And that's true of so many folks that are sitting around you in these pews. So when I say you found a special place, that's why. I am here because of people like you, people like that. And it just, it humbles me and it inspires me to be in a place where they take what they put up on a, on a banner, where they take it seriously. So if you're looking for a church home, that's the kind of place that Edgemere is. And that's why you have found a special place. We're so glad you're here. Hope you're blessed by your time with us this morning. Well, good morning again, church. To get us started, before we get into the lesson, I want to take you to the Big Bend country. Down there in the Big Bend, I was there a couple years ago on a float trip on the Rio Grande. And as we were floating down the river, there came a point where the, uh, the guide pointed up to, on the hills, this rocky hillside, there's this old car resting up there. Highway 170 is just above there, and it's, it's, the steepest, it's the steepest road in Texas, is what I read. And so it's mountains, and there's twists and turns. And apparently, there had been no guardrails where this car had veered off the highway and down this boulder field, and it came to a crashing stop right there. There was no way to pull it out, and so there it stayed for the last 30 years or whatever. I'm going to leave that car. We're going to leave that car up on that hill. We're going to come back to that. But, but before we do, let me just ask this question. I'm just going to think about this question. We'll come, we'll come back to that car, and we'll come back to that, this question. Did that car have the freedom to go wherever it wanted to go? Before it wound up there, when it was up on Highway 170, did it have the freedom to go wherever it wanted to go? Think about that, and we'll come back to that. So we're in a series called A Biblical World, and what we're talking about is a biblical worldview. We're sketching out, based upon Scripture, a biblical worldview, which means what the Bible says is reality and the best way to live in light of that reality. A biblical worldview tells us this, this is how you should see and understand things, what's happening around you, what you feel inside you. And last week, we used this diagram to kind of illustrate in a very simple, and this is very simplified, a very simple way, what a biblical worldview would look like. What we said was we find ourselves in God's world. We, we, we explored, you know, what would make the most sense in terms of how we got here and, and why we are the way we are. And what we decided was there had, to be, there had to be life for life to come from. There had to be a living being to give life to everything else. And the, the, the moral sense that we have inside us, that, that, that need or that desire for justice, where did that come from, that idea of right and wrong? We said, well, morality only comes from a moral being. It doesn't come from anything else. And so there had to be a living moral being that existed before everything else did. And we said, that sounds a lot like God. And so a biblical worldview starts with the idea that he is the creator from which everything else began, and we find ourselves in God's world. And in this world, he created us to be in three relationships. He placed us in three relationships that are inescapable. 
And those are relationship with God, and then our relationship with, with others, other people, and our relationship with earth. And earth is more than just the environment. It, it's the material world. It's our possessions, and we'll get into more of that. But we also said that it's not just understanding these three relationships that we're a part of. The secret is also understanding how to prioritize those three relationships properly. And scripture is clear that God is number one. Your highest priority, the most important relationship you have is with God, with your creator. To get everything else right, to get your relationships right with others, to get your relationships right with, with, with earth or with your possessions, you have to get your relationship with God right first. To understand why that is, it's probably the, the best way to illustrate why is to show you what happens when you don't. And that's basically the first stories of your Bible is showing you here's what happens when you don't make God your first priority, when, when you ignore that relationship. So we're going to start way back in the first chapter of Genesis, Genesis 1, and we'll cover some of the stuff that we mentioned last week with, starting with Genesis 1.27. So God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So God says, I'm creating you humans in my image and I'm giving you dominion. I'm giving you rule over all other creatures. You have dominion over this created earth, and you are superior to all other creatures. God, God says man alone is made in the image of, of him. So we alone, humans, are made in the image of God. It doesn't say that about anything else that was created. So then go down to verse 8 of chapter 2. So then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. And the Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. And in the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God creates the perfect home for humanity. He says, okay, I'm going I'm to give you everything that you're going to need, everything that you need, everything to, that you will need to, to take care of yourself, to feed yourself. And it was beyond that, he's made a beautiful place. There, there's more descriptions in Genesis 2 about how beautiful it was, how blessed and rich it was. And they are meant to enjoy it. God creates them with the, the senses to enjoy what he has given them in Eden, to find pleasure in it and in each other with just one restriction. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it, but the Lord God warned him. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die or you will surely die. That prompts two questions for me. One question is, why would knowledge of good and evil be a bad thing? I would think that would be a good thing. I would think, man, I want, I want more of that. Why would that be a bad thing? Well, it seems that the knowledge of evil, as, it, as, it, as it's described here, implies the experience of evil. To know about sin by participating in it. The thing is, we don't have to experience sin to know about it or to be wise about it. What, what's the beginning of wisdom 
in the biblical worldview, where you start to get smart, where you start to get wise, it's when you start to prioritize your relationship with God. Proverbs 1, 7, fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So wisdom doesn't begin by experiencing sin. You don't have to try something to know whether or not it's bad. And if you do, well, then you're not very wise. If they had simply obeyed, then over time, walking with God, and they were literally walking with God, they would have grown in wisdom and knowledge. This tree was a shortcut. This tree represented a shortcut through disobedience to the sort of knowledge they could have eventually gained through obedience. So this, you don't have to experience something to decide if it's good or bad. And secondly, here's my second question that comes up with that passage. If this tree was so dangerous, why put it in the garden, right in the middle, it says? There's not a fence around it. There's nothing. Why make it, if it's that dangerous, why make that poison so easily accessible? Here's why. God put it there because he's loving. I mean, that make a sense at first, but hear me out. God wanted to love us and for us to love him in that relationship. But love cannot be forced. You, you, you cannot mandate, you must love me. That's not love. Love requires a relationship. And so for us to love God, we had to be able to choose to love him and obey him. So that tree was a choice. That tree was the exit door in the perfect home God had made for Adam and Eve. If someone puts you in, if they built a house for you and they put you in the house, and no matter how fancy, how nice it was, if there was no door in that house, that's not a home. That's a prison. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the exit necessary to make Eden a home instead of a prison. It was the choice necessary for a loving relationship. See, God did not make us like, like toys that he can just manipulate however he wants to. And one of my favorite toys growing up was I had this huge box. You know, those little plastic army men, those little green army men? That was probably my favorite toy as a kid. I spent... I don't know how many hours, and I would have these elaborate battle scenes all over the kitchen floor or the furniture or out in the yard. You know, and those little guys, they did whatever I wanted. They went wherever I forced them to go. And they, man, they fought and they died thousands of times. But the battles they fought were for nothing. They were, they were meaningless. Now, the good thing was, unlike real wars, there, there was no real pain, there was no real suffering, no real blood. But there was also no glory, no significance, no love or passion in their plastic world with no choice. They were objects. I had no relationship with them. So when God chose to give us free will, he gave us the ability to choose poorly 
to cause terrible pain and damage. But, but folks, we would not want it any other way. I would not want to live in a plastic world with no choice. That's not love. That's not life. If you think about it, as painful as free will can be, as much damage as we can cause, I wouldn't want it any other way. Because without free will, we could never give or receive love. We could never experience the most wonderful facets of life. We're placed in God's world with these three relationships and choices, free will. So choices we make with our free will, they have real consequences because we're not living in someone's imagination. We're not in a plastic world like my little army men. We're in reality. This is reality. This is real. And so the stakes are real. And the good and the bad are real. And when we choose poorly, there are real consequences, as we're about to see. Open up to Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Now just where this serpent came from, we're not told. It's just, it just there. How he can talk, we're not told. He just does. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Rather than rule over the creatures, rather than, than assume the position and the responsibility that God gave them to rule as superior moral beings, the only moral beings over all other life, they listened to and followed one of those lesser creatures who was enticing them into direct defiance of God. So when the woman, so already, you see, kind of see what's happening? When, when we get our priorities wrong with these relationships, they've already done that. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to be make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of them both were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They defied direct command of God. They didn't trust him. That's what it comes down to. They didn't trust him because now they're not sure if obeying him really is the best path. Because what is he holding out on us? What does he not want us to know? I, I don't trust him anymore. And so that relationship is broken. Rather than trust God, they decide they're going to be their own gods. They are going to be number one. They will decide 
what is right or wrong based upon how it feels to them. Now they have become their gods. And that broken relationships sends them hiding from God. That breaks. And now there's this chain reaction. Now <laughs> their eyes are opened. And what they, what they decide is, what they feel is shame. Not just, not just between them and God, but between each other. That chain reaction now breaks this relationship. Because now they don't trust each other. They, they hide themselves behind these poorly made coverings. Why? Because they don't trust each other. They don't feel safe being vulnerable with their spouse anymore. That relationship now is broken. And so now they hide from each other behind these clothes. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And of course God knows where they are. This, this is not, I can't find you. This is, Adam, think about where you are. And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And of course God knows the answer. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So this, everything is just, it's just falling apart. Adam blames Eve. The, that, that trust, that bond, it's all, it's all just falling apart. And he kind of blames God too. This woman that you gave me, if you gave me a better model, this would not have happened. This, this one is defective. He's blaming God for this. So then God explains the consequences of their bad decisions. I gave you free will. You used it poorly. Now here's what's going to happen. Here's how life is going to be. Here's what's happening in the world and the world you're going to live in now. And we're, going to, we're not going to read all of that. I just want to just read just one thing from Genesis 3.16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, we're not going to have time to, to cover it all, but just, I just want to acknowledge there is some debate here in terms of how to translate that, what exactly that means in the relationship between men and women or husband and wife, I should, I should say. And if this, is, if this is descriptive, means this is how it's going to be, or proscriptive, this is how, this is how it ought to be, there's, there's debate on all of that. But I just want to show you how some different translations, the New Living Translation, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. The NIV decides the best way to translate that is your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So in any case, the point I want to make is those relationships that are so important to her, and women, are, women are, are so attuned to relationships, and generally they're so much better at relationships than, than us men are. God says the thing that's most important to you, your relationships, Eve, now that is going to be much more complicated. Now it's going to be dented and difficult in a way it never was before. 
And then he turns to the man and says, here's what's, gonna, here's, here's what's changed in how you are going to live now. Verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The wreckage has come all the way down to now their relationship with earth is impacted. Cursed is the ground. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles they shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So even our relationship with earth is impacted by sin. But here's what I want us to understand about sin, and I hope this illustrates it. Sin is not breaking a rule. That's how we tend to think about, oh, you've sinned. Well, that means you've, you've, you've broken a rule. No, no, what this story shows is sin breaks relationships, and that damage is more than we realize. People think, you know, why, why make such a big deal about a sin? You're, you're breaking a rule. Does a rule really make sense? No, you have broke a relationship, and that starts a, that starts a, a chain reaction that is so damaging. And so we're going to see that same tragedy repeat itself in the next chapter, in the next generation of this story. And again, we're going to see the same thing. When you don't prioritize your relationship with God first, everything else goes wrong. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Here's how that one goes. Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. So we have a rancher and a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, at first it seems hard to understand what the problem is. Cain, Cain made an offering, right? I mean, that's a good thing. Isn't that what God would want? I mean, I would give him some credit for that. So we're not told exactly what the problem was with it, but you can tell something's off. And it appears that Cain knew it too. Cain, Cain knew this wasn't, this wasn't quite right. And you can just tell just by the tone of those sentences. Because it says, Abel gave the first and best of his herd. He put his relationship with God above how much he values his possessions. He gave him the best of his animals, the best portion of what he had grown, with the understanding that I give God my best, he'll, he'll take care of me. Even if I give him my best animals, he'll provide more. That, there's that trust in Abel's relationship with God, and that's shown in his sacrifice. But look what it says what Cain gave. Cain gave some. He gave some of his harvest. And that makes me think he's withholding. Maybe like his parents, he doesn't completely trust God. Maybe he's afraid if he gives his best, if he gives more, it might not be enough for him. 
there, 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 there's some sort of withholding there. He doesn't, he doesn't feel very obligated to God. So Cain's problem starts with this relationship. A mediocre commitment to God is what I think is going on. What should be his most important relationship? What should, what should be the wholehearted relationship for Cain? It's almost like it's, like it's tinged with resentment. And once this starts getting in trouble, we know what happens. It's going to seep down into everything else, into every other relationship. And sure enough, look what happens. Verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord God said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? Again, he knows the answer. He wants Cain to say, I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? He doesn't value his relationship with God, and he doesn't value his relationship with others either. He resents he has an obligation to God. He resents this idea that he has an obligation to his brother. To me, it looks like Cain wants to be self-sufficient. He wants to be free from those obligations, which really what it comes down to is it's being your own God, being completely self-sufficient, not needing these relationships. You're, you're your own man. You're your own God. He wants to create his own world, not, not this one, not with these relationships. He wants to create his own world. Go down to verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. My guess is that's what God did as a consequence because this is where Cain showed his most love. His possessions, the earth, that is the one that he was prioritizing. And God said, no, I'm not going to let you do that. So Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod, that word in the original language, means wandering. The land of wandering. Now, I think, like I said, I think God cursed Cain's relationship with material things so Cain would no longer put his trust in those things and might instead seek a relationship again with God. I, th I think that's what was behind that curse. But instead, Cain chose self-sufficiency and pity, self-pity. Never, he never repented. When he was sorry, he was sorry for himself, not what he had done to his brother. I want to point out something else, too. In, in both of those stories, the Adam and Eve story and the, and the Cain story, God did not break off his relationship with the sinners. They did. God did not break that relationship. They did with their sin, with their free will. And God didn't cast Cain from his presence. That's, that's what Cain said was happening. 
That's not what God said was happening. That's what Cain decided. And what God responded with was loving protection. Even after everything that Cain had did, that mark of Cain was meant to protect him. And so God was still keeping that relationship possible. The possibility of a relationship between God and Cain, it was still, the door was still open. God was not slamming that door shut yet. And that is so important in understanding the God that made you. What we've seen in how God's responded to both these stories is what 1 John tells us about God. 1 John 4, 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. His nature, his very essence is love. He cannot do something that is not loving. The motivation behind everything he does is loving. That is so important for you to know about your creator and his relationship with you. We hear the same thing, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's love is available to us until our last breath. And nothing else in our life will be right until we get right with God. He has not slammed the door on you. That relationship is still a possibility for you. And that door does not close until your last breath. But until you get this one right, all these others will never be right. You will never be satisfied. You will never find fulfillment. God is the creator the living moral being that gives life and sustains it and embodies all that is right and true, all that is good, all we need to thrive. That's what we've learned about God. So apart from him, outside of that, what are you left with? If, if God embodies all of that and is the source of all of that, what are you left with? Outside of him, away from him? If it's not life, it's death. If it's not light and truth, it's darkness. If it is not moral reality, it's chaos. That is what you find in the land of Nod. If you decide to wander away from God, that's where you're headed. We can't find anything good outside of him to survive and thrive, to be moral and just. We have to be in him, aligned to him, obedient to him. Everything really good is in him. Everything really right is in him. That means God's created order is reality. To defy God's design is to defy reality. But modern humanism wants to do exactly what Adam and Eve and Cain wanted to do. To ignore God and find a freedom that is the license to do whatever they want. To find their truth. To find happiness by following their hearts. To be their own gods. And we see that play out in so many ways in our culture. Now, now they want to be free to, to redefine marriage or redefine gender or redefine love, regardless of biology or anatomy or how that always disappoints us. It won't work. You're defying reality. Because God embodies all of those virtues perfectly. God alone 
So you cannot create them apart from him. You cannot cast aside God without losing what is good and moral and real. The goodness of God, the morality of God, the design of God for human thriving are realities we cannot redefine or defy. And that design and morality, the way, we, the way love really behaves, those are all defined by God in God's word. So all of those commands in God's word, they're like, they're like guardrails for us. You know, you know guardrails, they, they definitely limit where you can go. They, they keep you in. But they're there for your own good. I mean, guardrails are not judgmental or demeaning, and it'd be weird to think of them like that. That's not how we think of guardrails. Well, that's how we need to start thinking about God's word and God's command. They are guardrails. That's how we need to understand God's, God's word, God's, the, the ethical code he gives to us. Through his word, he has given us instructions that act like guardrails to prevent us from wrecking our lives. God made us. God knows our limits. God knows what's best for us, much better than we do. But you're going to hear many voices that demand freedom to do what they want to do, to find themselves. And where the Bible says some actions are sinful, they scoff. And they say it's, it's, it's unhealthy, it's unnatural to restrict your, your natural desires. They say you should follow your heart wherever it takes you. They, they shape against the idea of sin. And what they say, if, if you call me a sinner, well, that, that is demeaning. That devalues me. But when the loving God calls a behavior a sin, it, it's a loving warning for the very reason that he does value you. When he says, that's a sin, when he says, don't do that, it's because he does love you. Not because he's devaluing you, but because he does value you. And he doesn't want you going off-roading into decisions that will only hurt you. Let's go back, let's go back to the Rio Grande. Let's go back to that car up on the hill. I asked you at the beginning if that car had the freedom to do what it wants, to go where it wants. When it was up on Highway 170, did it have the freedom to go wherever it wanted to? In one sense, yes. You, if I'm in that, that car, I can choose to, to hit that gas and take that car anywhere I want. Well, I can try. I can try. But when I drop off the road, I'm going to eventually hit the reality that I really don't have the ability to do whatever I want. I can't defy reality. And when you do, there are consequences. Free will, wandering, unrestrained, chasing desires, that's not freedom. That's not freedom. The folks who follow their hearts and desires free of God are not the happiest. They're just the most selfish. Following your heart does not make you a better person, a more moral person. It just makes you more selfish. And you do that for very long, and you end up just like that car next to the Rio Grande, stuck, ruined. That's not freedom. But listen, church, the world is lying to you about this. Freedom from God is not freedom. 
being adrift in the land of Nod, the land of wandering without God, that's not being free. The Bible calls it being lost. And without that relationship with God, you're lost. That's what you are. That's the reality. You're lost. And you are destined to end stuck in despair and death. And that's a tragic waste. Because God, the loving God, created you for so much more than that. Deuteronomy 5 this is, this is God speaking through Moses. So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. God's desire, your loving Father's desire, is that you're not lost, but you're saved.